From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, and of course, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Fred. <laughs> good day, Andrew. <laughs> that works better, Yeah, at least in this country. Uh, nice to talk to you again. Today, we've got um, quite a few uh, different things to talk about, uh, although some of them seem similar. Let's elaborate later. But uh, we're going to talk about the discovery uh, or what may be the discovery of uh, yet another dwarf planet beyond uh, Neptune. And uh, this is maybe, I think, the fifth or sixth that they would have found, uh, but they think there are a heck of a lot more. Uh, we're also going to look at uh, a, a fascinating system that's been discovered where there's a planet orbiting three stars. Well, when I say orbiting, sort of. It's it's an unusual circumstance and possibly, uh, in universal terms, quite rare. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, another maybe discovery, that of a, um, a new particle, uh, which might have been found by the Large, Large Hadron Collider. I love, Fred, the way um, in astronomy you can get away with saying, well, we might have found something. <laughs> Well, it, you definitely can in particle physics because they never really know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that a little later. First up, though, let's talk about this uh, dwarf planet that they think might be out there beyond Neptune. Now, we were talking about Planet Nine not so long ago and the, and the probability that a ninth planet does exist in our solar system uh, because that's what the mathematics are telling us. Uh, I'm guessing this is not it. Yeah, you're quite right, Andrew. It's not it. It's it's um, far too small to be Planet Nine. Um, and I think it's probably in the wrong place as well. Planet Nine, just to recap on that, um, that, that uh, object has been postulated because of an alignment in the orbits of some of these what are called Kuiper Belt objects, these very distant icy asteroids beyond the orbit of Neptune. <clears throat> Several of them have their orbits aligned in a peculiar way. And the suggestion made earlier this year was that that is because there is a big planet out there, bigger than the Earth, probably, um, one that is sort of pulling their orbits into this alignment. So um, the discovery that's been reported this week is a, a different one and not really related to that, although it does con concern the outer solar system. So this is of an object which is yet, uh, yes, again, it's one of these icy asteroids beyond the orbit of Neptune. Um, it's uh, actually uh, in a, an orbit that is 
really quite elongated and at its nearest it pulls this object is is um, in about the, at about the same distance as Pluto is from from the sun. Okay. But at, at its furthest, it's it's probably about two and a half times that distance. So it's it's got this very elongated orbit. We should give it a name, Andrew. So oh yes. <clears throat> Here we go. <laughs> our listeners know what, <laughs> what it's called. <clears throat> it's a very glamorous name. 2015 RR245. Yeah. Um, I, I like the RR bit because RR always reminds me of Rolls Royce, which is of course a terribly, <laughs> terribly British name. I think I think in planetary terms it would be nothing like a Rolls Royce. No, I don't think so. <clears throat> Cold, icy, rocky, pretty boring. Right, yes, that's right. Uh, yes, uh, rocky and rough probably. Although we have discovered that uh, Pluto is not boring, so this one no. probably isn't either. That's right. That's absolutely right. So uh, this is. Um, one of uh, there's certainly more than a thousand of these distant Kuiper Belt objects have been discovered. What makes this one special, as you said in your intro, is that it's actually big enough that its own gravity will have pulled it into a spherical shape. Uh, it will have overcome the resistance of the rocky material that it's made of and will be uh, essentially a spherical object. Mm. It's thought to be about 700 kilometres across. So what that does is it moves it up into the next category of planethood uh, because when an object is spherical, uh, it, it is a dwarf planet. Um, it only becomes a planet if it's, if it's cleared the whole of its region of debris. That's what qualifies you to be a planet. That's why uh -huh. Pluto isn't a planet because Pluto sits among this same belt of icy asteroids that, that we're discussing. So uh, RR245 um, is uh, in a very interesting orbit. It's very elongated. It's, I think, what um, takes it to one of the, uh, to, to, to the greatest distance of any of these, um, of these particular Kuiper belt objects. So um, uh, it's one of the, you know, one of the things uh, that astronomers look at uh, when they see orbits of this kind is, well, how did an object like this form? How did it get into that orbit? And this information then feeds into our understanding of the origin and structure of the solar system as a whole. Mm. There'd have to be a limit, though, on how far out an object like this could be. There'd be, like this one's got, as you say, an elongated orbit, but um, we've got to reach a point where we would go past them and not find anything like this. Uh, that's correct. Um, and that, in fact, you've got a problem there because um, you will come to a point where what we in the trade call selection effects play a very large part. And the selection effect in this case is that, you know, 700 kilometre objects out there in the depths of the solar system eventually become invisible because they're too faint for our telescopes. Mm. And so what you've got is... Um, two things. First of all, you've probably got a dwindling number of objects at these very great distances, but also you've got the problem of trying to see them because they're they're so far away that um, that um, Earth-based telescopes and even orbiting telescopes are not capable of picking them up. Um, that's why we don't see the objects that we think are the most distant objects in the solar system, and that is the sort of reservoir of comets which are thought to be at very, very great distances, distances almost comparable with the, the, the nearest star, you know, kind of um, distances measured almost not, not quite in light years, but certainly in, in light months. And that's um, a cloud of what, what you might call proto-comets, the nuclei of comets, 
a cloud of them, which is called the Oort cloud, named after Jan Oort, who was a very great uh, 20th century astronomer. Um, the Oort cloud is thought to be a sort of spherical shell of comets existing way out there in the depths of the solar system. Periodically, <clears throat> some of those comets are perturbed, so they fall in towards the inner, inner part of the solar system. And that's when we see these, what, what are called long period comets, um, you know, occasional visitors to the inner solar system, which seem to have fallen out of the well, out of the sky almost. The reason why we think that's a spherical shell is because comets can come in at any angle. They don't just come in at the planar in the plane of the solar system. So that's a different category of object. This is not um, the the sort of family that RR two four five belongs to. Uh, that's definitely an icy asteroid. Uh, the discovery was made um, actually through a um, a, t a telescope that's that's been being used to really refine the orbits of these very distant Kuiper Belt objects. It's it's got a slightly odd name. Strange that. Yeah, it's called Ossos. Ossos, <laughs> which is the Outer Solar System Origin Survey, and, and this um, it, this object turned up actually a year ago. It was uh, almost a year ago, back in September 2015. Yeah, that's yeah. another thing about astronomers I've noticed. They'll discover something and they'll get around to telling people about it eventually. <laughs> well, the, the reason for that... Confirmation, uh, this, determination. It, yeah, it's actually more about the, the just the physics of how things move in the very depths of the solar system, because this thing is... Because they're so far away, they appear to be moving very slowly uh, through our sky. So you need to take s several observations. You, you might discover this thing and then want to take a sequence of observations to actually work out what the orbit is. And then think about it and then, yes, as you say, uh, deliberate on it. Apply to the International Astronomical Union for a designation, uh, in this case, 2015 RR245, and then um, and then you announce it eventually. Yeah. The okay. um, just just uh, adding to that, RR245 will almost certainly not be its final name because uh, what happens is the with these Kuiper Belt objects, the discoverers themselves get to choose the name. But the convention is that they're named after one of the creation deities in the indigenous culture of wherever these astronomers are working. Oh, so my word. It's quite complicated. So this will have... A uh, very interesting name when, when we find out what it is. <laughs> it's a Canadian group, actually, that have discovered them. Okay. Oh, well. Um, we'll yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly make mention of that when we when we find out because it would be really interesting to see if they can come up with something exotic. I mean, yes. there's some, some great names out there, but geez, there's, some, there's some absolute there shockers as well. Yes. Um, and, and the final point, I suppose, is um, this thing's so far out and it's got such a wide orbit, it, uh, it takes 700 years to orbit the sun, from what I understand. So that's right, yes. That's, so, uh, that's a long time. That's a big so year. A long time between birthdays, that's right. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> You're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and your host, Andrew Dunkley. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we move on to uh, another uh, discovery, and this one is uh, even more um, strange and exotic and possibly rare um, than, than most things that we, we talk about. And that is of a, um, a planet that seems to have been discovered orbiting a triple star system. Now, we've, we've heard of binary star systems. They're not all that uncommon. But uh, a triple star system may well be um, something that's not easily found and, and certainly not, uh, not all that common. That's right, Andrew. Um, 
You're quite right that binary stars, stars that are basically in pairs, really are common. In fact, there are probably more of them than there are single stars. So in that sense, it makes our sun a little bit unusual that it doesn't have a companion star. It's around about 50% that are like that. Mm. Uh, triple star systems are rarer, but they're by no means unknown. And in fact, there are even quadruple star systems where you've got two pairs of stars which are orbiting one another. There's, there's examples of that too. So what we have here is, uh, <laughs> look, there's another glamorous name yeah, coming I, up. Yeah, I, I kind of expected this. <laughs> uh, the star is HD 131399, as you'd kind of expect. <laughs> um, just to, to complete the picture there, HD stands for Henry Draper, the Henry Draper catalogue, one of the great 19th century uh, catalogues of stars. Henry Draper was an astronomer. He masterminded this catalogue. And this uh, star system is the 131,399th star in that catalogue. But it's a triple star, as you say. It has um, a single star which uh, is uh, in orbit around a pair of stars which are themselves in orbit around one another so that they they hang don't on, hang on hang on so you've got two stars spinning around each other and yep. then another star orbiting them that's right in fact what what it's orbiting is their center of gravity what we call the barycenter because it's it's almost like um you know when you've got stars orbiting one another it's all, almost like a dumbbell with an object at each side and the the balance point is in between them mm. uh, but there's no bar across them that's done by gravity and they just so we've got this swivel around each other basically that, yeah that's right this pair of stars which are orbiting um, on a on a time scale of of, of a year or so um, and then around that is this uh, uh, other star which is orbiting on a much longer time scale and around that uh, star is a planet uh, which ha has the name 131399AB and it's A because A is the brightest component of the star system and B is because this is a planet of that star. It's a complex nomenclature. Uh, but uh, the, the planet uh, orbits uh, its parent star uh, actually in a similar, not that different a time from the um, the asteroid that we were just talking about, the dwarf planet we were just uh, referring to, uh, the planet's orbit is about 550 of our years. So once again, <clears throat> quite a long time between, between birthdays there. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is that because of the way the planet orbits, um, for part of its orbit is basically in between the single star and the, and the binary pair. Yeah, this is where it gets really interesting because the planet isn't orbiting all three. It's orbiting the one that's orbiting the two. Just, that's right. It's orbiting just one of them. So, so, so the planet passes between exactly the suns. It passes between the single star and the, and the pair of stars. Gee, so at that, that time... Talk about hot summer nights. Yeah, there's no darkness. You know, <laughs> um, we don't know how quickly this planet rotates, it almost certainly does rotate, and because it's quite a long way from its parent star, it probably rotates relatively quickly. When things are close into their parent star, they tend to get locked in, the, in that they face, always face the same side. And this one's a long way away, and so it's probably spinning a bit more quickly, and so, you know, it could even be a time scale similar to our own, once every 24 hours or so, but that means that you don't get any darkness. You've got one star on one side of the sky and the other stars on the other side of the sky. Mm. And, um, yeah, it becomes tri tricky to sleep. It just makes it interesting to speculate what kind of a life form 
might have evolved on a on a system like that. Yeah, imagine living there. You, for, for part of the time, you'd be in total lightness. But then, when it got onto the other side of the the the, the single star, there would be darkness. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. Periodically, but yeah, the problem you, we have is that you don't live long enough to witness one or the other. Um, well, you don't if you're a human, but what if you're a, an inhabitant of, um, you know, of, of, of 131399AB yeah. who's evolved there on that planet to those conditions? It's actually unlikely that the planet itself would support life. Its, it's mass is probably about four times that of Jupiter. Mm. And that makes it a big gas giant planet. Um, it's almost certainly uh, like Jupiter, uh, a, a gassy object with no solid surface. However... Of course, like Jupiter, it might well have satellites or moons that themselves could, could sustain life. Uh, so it could be a system uh, where there, that life has evolved and, um, and has, has basically evolved in order to put up with these extraordinary circumstances. It's very strange. And I, I would imagine when it is in between all of the suns, there would be changes in the light level depending on which way you're facing because one of the stars is quite... Large and the other two appear not to be. It's um... yeah, that's right. They're, 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 and they're different colours as well, slightly yeah. different colours. So um, one of them is very much a blue star. Um, we probably never find out the details about this because um, the, this system is about three hundred and forty light years away. Uh, one light year is nine trillion kilometres per per, um, per second. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I beg your pardon. One light year, sorry, it's too early in the morning. One light year <laughs> is about nine trillion kilometres. There's no seconds there. No. It's nine trillion kilometres. It's a heck of a long way. Um, and 340 of them is even further. However, the nice thing is that it, it, it is in our southern sky. It's in the constellation of Centaurus. Mm, but it is, it, it's fascinating to try and imagine being there and, and what, it, what it would be like. And, and I know in uh, one of the articles they've written about this, they compared it to Luke Skywalker's home planet, which had a, uh, a pair of suns. And um, so you get these dual sunrise effects, which were very well portrayed in the original Star Wars movie. But uh, yeah. uh, this, one would, this one would be quite, um, quite odd as well. I think so. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, fascinating discovery, Fred. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Space Nuts. Now to another possible discovery, Fred. This is uh, one they think they might have found and uh, are certainly chattering about uh, in CERN in Switzerland where we have the Large Hadron Collider because we're talking about a particle, something so minute that we only think it exists. <laughs> please, <laughs> please explain. Yeah, so this is the thing about particle physics. It's very different. I mean, with you know the, the discoveries we've just been talking about, which uh, have been made by direct observation, uh, are pretty well... 100% certain in terms of whether they exist or not. But in particle physics, the whole thing is built on probabilities. And that's partly because particle physics operates at the quantum level. And as you know, with quantum physics, things behave very strangely. They, they can be in two states at once. They can even be in two places at once. That is very, very weird behavior. Mm. Um, but uh, the scientists who work in this field have a, a very, you know, they've got a very firm 
what you might call a mathematical or a scientific or logical structure um, in, in which they work and they operate and so they, uh, they know when something is certain and when it's not. And in fact, what you do is you, you, you rate things uh, uh, by the level of their probabilities uh, as to you know, what chance there is of this thing uh, existing or not. Um, we we um, talk about that in, in terms of, um, well, as I said, it's the probability, uh, y you know, the confidence levels with which you can, you can say that a certain thing exists or behaves in a certain way. So taking all that as a preface, uh, just before Christmas last year, um, two of the detectors on the Large Hadron Collider, and there are basically four main detectors uh, on that uh, on that ring. Remembering that the collider is this eight eight kilometer diameter underground tunnel, it's a circular underground tunnel, which is full of superconducting magnets um, uh, and and has two little tubes in the middle of it. Uh, the magnets are there to guide particles around it. Let me get it right, 99.99998% of the speed of light. Wow. Um, in other words, they're, they're essentially going at the speed of light. Uh, two, two, two beams in opposite, going in opposite directions, and there are four places where you can collide them together. And that's where all the interesting analysis happens. Because when you throw these, these uh, it's actually um, protons that they, that they collide, uh, what they do is fly apart into much smaller bits and pieces, um, like throwing two rocks together, mm. except that um, some of the debris doesn't last for very long. Some of it lasts for microseconds before it decays into other kinds of particles. And that's the trick with, with this whole business, is uh, making the collisions and seeing what the, the collision products are. So uh, four main experiments uh, with lovely names, Alice, Atlas, LHCB, and CMS. Two of the main ones, Atlas and CMS, are the ones that really look for new flavors of particles. They're completely independent experiments. The only thing they have in common is that they, you know, they're, they're, they're basically uh, in the same particle beam and colliding the same particles, but everything else is independent. Back in uh, December last year, both of them at an informal meeting at CERN, the, both these groups, CMS and ATLAS, both recorded a bump in their data just a, a sort of small peak in the mm. in the you know the spectrum analysis that they're doing. Um, they what they saw was um, a, a, it's called an excess of photon pairs. Photon pairs are just one type of subatomic particle that's coming from this collision debris, and they uh, these things have a combined mass of 750 giga electron volts. So that's the that's the position in the sort of spectrum where this bump appears. You don't need to worry about the units. It's all gobbledygook to most of us, <laughs> including me, I have to say, Andrew. Um, I'm, I'm a sort of admirer of particle physics, but I can't pretend to understand all the details. Uh, giga electron volt is a, is a measure of energy. It's a bit like, you know, wavelength or frequency in, in sound uh, and, and in light uh, measurements. Okay. So they've got this figure of 750 GeV is the way you abbreviate it. Mm. Um, uh, uh, basically, a, a, a GeV is a billion electron volts, so 750 of those. And the interesting bit is that the two uh, experiments both recorded this. Now, the that is a heavy particle, actually. It's about six times more massive 
than the Higgs boson that we found in 2012. That was, you know, what people were calling the God particle because it was believed to exist but had never been detected. That was detected by the, the collider back in 2012 and, and is now accepted with 100% certainty because of all the measurements that have been made. So with this new particle, if, it's, if it exists, it's still, um, it's, it's still in the realm of almost speculation because they haven't got the amount of data that you need to make it a certain observation. Um, but uh, the experiments are still going on. Apparently, there are rumors within the CERN, the uh, uh, European Nuclear Research Community, that suggest that the observations are going away. And that's why we're talking about it now, because if they disappear, we won't have anything to talk about. <laughs> ah. but, but they may, on the other hand, be confirmed. Why are astronomers excited by this? Because astronomers know that something like 25% of the matter in the universe, I beg your pardon, something like 25% of the contents of the universe um, are in the form of what we call dark matter. It's a form of matter that's hidden from us. We don't know what it is. It's a subatomic particle of some kind, but it is massive. It's a massive particle that may... Um, you know, be something like the particle that may or may not have been detected at the Large Hadron Collider. That's and, why we astronomers are following the story with such great interest. Yes, and and I suppose we're really only in the very, very early stages of this kind of uh, study, and there is so much more to learn, and who knows whether or not, A, we'll be capable of learning it, and B, what we'll find out if we can learn over uh, the years and decades to come. But I, I wonder if, ultimately, if we start cracking this kind of science, will it open up so many more doors in terms of our capabilities as human beings, even in terms of uh, may, maybe being able to uh, to find new forms of travel that, that uh, yeah. can bypass the limitations we face now, that sort of thing? Uh, absolutely. Look, I, um, you know, while I tend to keep my feet fairly firmly on the ground as a scientist, I do see the possibilities for discoveries that might come from this kind of research. Um, one of the one of the chief theories that might explain dark matter and and might actually be something to do with these bumps in the in the Large Hadron Collider's data. The the chief theory is is supersymmetry, and it set and supersymmetry suggests that for every um, for every subatomic particle, and there are basically 16 of them plus the Higgs boson, uh, there is a shadow particle, something else that we can't see, but it's much more massive. Mm. Uh, it's a theory that the physicists really like, but so far has got no evidence to support it. This is the first, the first little hint that there might be something out there that's rewriting physics. But if supersymmetry turns out to be correct, then you've suddenly opened up a whole new world uh, of reality because supersymmetry requires hidden dimensions to operate. We, you know, we know there are three dimensions of space and one of time, but supersymmetry says, no, there are actually more than that. If there are hidden dimensions, who knows what the new physics might allow us to do that we can't do at the moment. That's yeah. Um, why I agree with your, you know, your postulate that that maybe down the track, probably well beyond yours and my lifetimes, 
but maybe, just maybe, there might be completely new ways of doing things that we can't see at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, certainly exciting if, if indeed we're ever capable of reaching a point where we can understand it. And that's, uh, yeah, like I said, we're only just starting out uh, in real terms. Yeah. Uh, although I'm still trying to get my head around the... Um, the way they find a proton to stick in a gun to shoot into another proton. I mean, what, do they open a drawer and pick it up? I don't know how they uh, do that. I, I, it's, it's even more um, mundane than that. It's a, like a gas cylinder because protons are the nuclei of hydrogen atoms. Right. So you've got a hydrogen cylinder just feeding into the, <laughs> into the thing. You knock off all the electrons and you've got a proton. There it is. See, I knew you'd know. Yeah. Because <laughs> you've been there. Uh, Fred? Thank you so much. Always interesting to talk to you, and uh, we will catch up with you in another week. Sounds great, Andrew. Thanks very much, and talk soon. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and you've been listening to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast. And I hope you keep listening. Tell your friends. Uh, do some reviews on iTunes for us. Uh, send us your messages and questions on Facebook, and um, share the, um, the the podcast uh, with your friends and um, and get the word out. Uh, we, we're starting to pick up some really good numbers in terms of downloads these days, and uh, we just wanted to keep on growing and and tell people about some of the amazing things happening in the astronomical world. So uh, that's it for this week. Thanks again, and we will catch up with you real soon on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com. From Audio Boom comes Covert a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.